Good morning, Summit Church, uh, especially these you guys that are other, our other campuses. Uh, we are having a summer that is nearing a close here, and uh, so I've got a great announcement uh, in light of that, and that is that God has provided a place for us uh, after a lot of prayer and a lot of searching, and we are officially opening the Cary Campus at Cary High School on August the 28th. Uh, so that is good news. That is something we have been working toward and praying for for quite some time. Our Cary campus has been meeting over the summer. Uh, a couple hundred people uh, that are together that are at the BC South venue right now that are, uh, will be launching out uh, at the end of this month. Uh, a campus, just in case you're new around here, people sometimes are like, I don't know exactly what you're talking about. A campus is a meeting of the Summit Church at a different location. Uh, there's a live worship band. There is a local pastoral team. And then the video cast, uh, the, uh, the, the teaching um, is video cast in, uh, so like Danny loves to say, JD in 2D or uh, JD in HD if we can get that, or 3D if we can get the glasses. Um, uh, anyway, people, people always, people, one of the questions new people at our church ask is like, well, why do you do this? Um, why do you do this? Here's the reason. New campuses create, first of all, more space for people without us having to build continually larger and larger buildings. Um, we're not a big building church. We believe that buildings are tools. We don't believe that God's commission to us is to build a big monument to Jesus in the triangle. And so we try to be light. We try to be efficient and effective. And that's one of the ways that we do that. By God's grace, for the third year in a row, we have grown at right around 30%. And one of the ways that we maintain that kind of growth is we um, locate these campuses and we do it that way so it's more efficient. Uh, another reason is because new campuses create better spaces for leaders. Um, it always amazes me how when we open up a new campus, people, some people that have been kind of sitting on the sidelines will suddenly rise up into leadership. Uh, and, 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 and that's one of the things that we love to see at the Summit Church because we don't think the church is an audience. We think it's an army of people who ought to be involved. And so it creates space for leaders. Probably most importantly um, is that more local campuses make it easier for us to reach the local campuses that you got, reach the local communities that you guys live in. Um, you know as well as I do that it's much easier to reach somebody when you've got a church that is very local to them. Uh, it's easier to invite them to be a part of your church. And so one of the things that we say is, is stay where you are, serve where you live, let's be the church in your community. Now, whenever we talk about this, I will unfailingly get a comment from somebody um, that goes something like this. They're like, well, why don't you just plant churches instead? Okay, listen, in the last 12 months, we have, have started three churches um, one of them in Denver, one of them right outside of Nashville, um, and then one of them that we're getting help start, we're helping get started um, in, uh, in North Raleigh. Uh, we, that includes, by the way, not only a lot of money, but it includes us sending out over 80 of our members, 80 who have uprooted from this church and moved to be a part of this church plant. All right, so back off. Um, <laughs> humbly in Jesus' name, back off, all right? Um, well, as we, are, as we are growing larger in attendance, uh, one of the things we also want to be doing is growing smaller at the same time. And by that I mean that we, uh, like I told you, we don't believe the church is an audience. It's not a show. Um, we believe that a church is a community. It is a community of people who know each other and who love each other and are equipping one another for ministry. And the way that we do that primarily is through small groups. That's why the role of small group leader here is one of the most important positions of ministry here at the Summit Church, period. And this Saturday, we have got a very strategic meeting for all current small group leaders, all new small group leaders, and all people who think that one day they might be a new small group leader. Um, it's going to be at the Briar Creek campus this Saturday. Um, I, we would really encourage you to be there if you fit in any of those categories. It's just a rally where we kind of explain what's going on. We all get on the same page. Um, you need to RSVP online, so please do that as soon as possible. Um, because uh, one, of my, my, one of the things that I don't like about the growth of this church is I, I hate how many people we have that are, it really is just a show for them. Um, so we need a lot more small group leaders to be able to, to, to work against that. And so, um, even if, by the way, by coming, you don't obligate yourself. You don't need to have gone to seminary to do this. Um, it, we will explain to you how you can be a host and a facilitator of this. So um, this Saturday, 9 o'clock, uh, Briar Creek Campus, we need you to RSVP online. All right? Well, we are on our last week of the Homewrecker series, and uh, let me just review real quick where we've been. Um, the first two weeks, we talked about what God's Word says about our jobs. 
because it's really impossible for us to have a balanced life at home if we don't have the right attitude toward the place we spend most of our time during the week. So that's what we did for two weeks. Then on the third week, we began to look at some things that corrode our relationships and destroy our homes. We went through first bitterness, um, then we, or excuse me, first fear, then we went through self-centeredness, and then we did bitterness as uh, a home wrecker. Last week, Trevor dealt with um, tragedy. Trevor is the guy that we just planted outside of Nashville, and he looked at how tragedy can become a home wrecker. Um, my final topic in this series is one that was not a part of my original list, but one that um, just over the course of the summer, I really feel compelled to talk to you about. Um, I would assume this is the Holy Spirit, and so um, I, I would, would think that there's probably some of you listening right now um, that, that you were why God laid this on my heart. And that final topic is despair. Despair. By despair, I mean this overwhelming, suffocating sense that life is just not going to get any better. You, you finally given up on your marriage. I mean, I mean, every once in a while, you would get this glimmer of hope that things were going to change only to have the door slammed in your face again. In fact, some of you might have actually been a little excited about this series, thinking this is going to be it. This is what God is going to use to turn my spouse around. And it might even have started to happen, but then it all caved in and it imploded and you're back to where you, you started. Or maybe your job is going nowhere, and you finally are kind of embracing that. Your dreams are shattered. Maybe your finances are just not, you thought this time, you thought last year that this time things would finally be on the up and up, but they're not, and you're starting to kind of, kind of resolve yourself that this is the new normal. Or maybe you're lonely. Maybe you're lonely and things don't seem to be changing. You're getting older. Every day that passes is another one that you're alone, and every day that passes, your prospects don't seem to be getting any brighter. Or maybe you think you're never going to get victory over a particular temptation or habit. You fall into it for the millionth time. Pornography. Maybe it's some kind of, of sexual perversion. Maybe it's losing your temper. And you just started to think, hey, you know what? Maybe this is me. Maybe I'm never going to change. Maybe, maybe this is just the reality. This is what I am. You're praying for a family member to come to Christ, but they're still as cold and turned off as ever. You're dealing with grief. Some of you, the loss of a, a parent, loss of a spouse, loss of a child, loss of a boyfriend or girlfriend, and you keep thinking that the grief is going to get better. You keep hearing that time heals all wounds, but it's just not changing for you. You know, sometimes you can't even really put your finger on what it is. Sometimes it's just this kind of dark cloud that seems to cover your life, and it leaves you with a sense of spiritual vertigo. You know, we don't really know what way's up, you don't know what way's north, you don't really know what way to walk or what to do, and so you feel yourself wanting to give up. You feel your heart beginning to, to succumb to, to bitterness, to cynicism, alcohol, drugs, suicide. It's really popular in our culture to, to turn to, to, to medication. And people always want to know, they're like, well, how do you feel about medication? Is it ever okay for us to take medication to, to deal with these kind of things? Well, first of all, I'm not a licensed counselor. Let me make that clear. Second of all, even if I were a licensed counselor, it is impossible for me to stand up here and make a general statement that would apply to everybody. But I will just say this very quickly in passing, all right? And that is that God has made us as a body-soul union. And that means that sometimes what's happening in the body does affect what is going on in the soul. We all know that at some level, right? You ever notice how when you haven't gotten enough sleep, you are much less sanctified? <laughs> right? I mean, you're snapping at everybody, you're crabby, and the answer is not just to go do your quiet time. Yes, go do your quiet time after you've gotten a good night's sleep. And then you'll find that both of them together actually help you with sanctification. You see, the body can aggravate what is going on in the soul. Here's the thing. While conditions in the body do aggravate spiritual conditions, they usually don't create them. That's the thing to remember. Brad Hambrick, our staff um, counselor here, our pastor that oversees a lot of this stuff, um, told me this week. He said, uh, he said, he said. So he said, if you here's how I, I see it. He said, he said, a few years ago, um, we were. I was uh, uh, in the yard playing with my kids, and I got a really bad case of poison ivy. And uh, he said, I had to go on a trip, and it was really inconvenient, you know, to have this poison ivy. So an uncle of mine, a good old redneck uncle of mine, told me that if I would, would, would scrub it with a Brillo pad and pour bleach on it, it would clear it up immediately. And he said, I thought that sounded like a good idea. This is the man that we have hired to care for your souls. <laughs> got, he says it got unbelievably infected. 
um, really effective. So we called the emergency room. The guy at the emergency room said, here's what you do. You, you, you prescribe for him an antihistamine together with a steroid that would speed up the healing process. Well, Brad said that he, he took this over the course of two or three days, and he noticed kind of in retrospect that those two or three days, he was just a, a, an animal. I mean, he was snapping at everybody, little things. He was just blowing up at people. And then he finally realized that what was aggravating that was that steroid. It was taking things that were normally there and then blowing them up to much larger proportions. And he said, that's what's going on in somebody's body. It, it, it's, not that, it's not that their bodily fluids are creating these issues, but they are. it's like pouring nitrous on them. Which is one of the reasons that we, we say, yes, there are some things that you may need to talk to somebody who knows what they're talking about as you go through this. It, but while your body aggravates these things, your body is not what creates idolatry, selfishness, or unbelief in your heart. That's why we say that medicines can help alleviate pain, but they can't give hope. Hope comes from somewhere entirely different. Hope is real, okay? Hope is real, and it does not come by deadening anything. Hope comes from somewhere different. So I'm not answering the question about medication. What I am showing you is that there is hope, and that hope is something a little bit different. So if you have your Bible, I want you to open them to Lamentations. Open your Bible to the book of Lamentations. Now, some of you are like, Lama, Lama who? Um, Lamentations is about uh, halfway through the Old Testament. If you got a table of contents, then open it up and check out where that is. Lamentations is, by the way, you're like, what does that mean? Is that like a Hebrew word? No. Um, Lamentations is an English word that means a lament. Lamentations is a collection of laments. Lamentations is the laments of the prophet Jeremiah. The book of Lamentations is a collection of five poems. It is a work of art in Hebrew. Those of you that have your Hebrew Bible in front of you can see that. How many of you is that, by the way, just out of curiosity? Okay, you can see that, 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 that Lamentations is five poems that are written as an acrostic, which go through every letter of the Hebrew alphabet. That's why every chapter has 22 verses, because the Hebrew alphabet has 22 letters, with the exception of the middle chapter, chapter 3, which we're going to look at, which has 66 verses, because it's a triple acrostic, so that each verse has, or each letter has three verses. You say, well, what is the point of you telling us all that other than, you know, to give us something to know during Bible Trivial Pursuit? Here's what it is. Is that Jeremiah is trying to show you that he is giving you the experience of suffering from A to Z. That's what most scholars think he's doing. Here is the experience of suffering from A to Z. You say, well, why is Jeremiah suffering? Jeremiah lived during a time when Israel was being punished for their sin. Israel had hardened their hearts to God so many times that God was doing to them what he promised he would do to them, and that is... He was exiling them from the land. And so Jeremiah had personally witnessed multiple violent deportations of his friends and his family from Israel. He'd seen the destruction of Jerusalem. He had watched the temple be torn down. He had watched friends and family members be carted off as slaves to the conquering nation of Babylon. And God gave Jeremiah, his prophet, a message to preach to them. And that message basically went like this. What you are experiencing is the judgment of God. Do not resist it. God is not going to raise up a hero who will bring you deliverance in your lifetime. You should repent, but you should not look for hope and deliverance. That's a popular message. And the people of Israel totally rejected it, and they put him in prison and said that he was guilty of treason. He was a traitor. And so he spent most of his time in prison. In fact, he probably wrote the book of Lamentations from the dungeon. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 1. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Driven, that word in Hebrew means driven like an animal. That's what it means, like with a whip. This is not all the way my Savior leads me, okay? This is not that. This is he drove me. You almost think that Jeremiah is thinking about some friends and family that he watched driven off like slaves. He has driven me and brought me into darkness without any light. That means hopelessness. I read a book this past year called The Endurance, which is about the failed mission of Sir Ernest Shackleton to be the first human to cross over the South Pole. And so he had to abort the mission from the very beginning because his ship, The Endurance, got trapped in polar ice and crushed. And so his team was stranded out there and basically a continent-sized floating iceberg for 18 months. 18 months. He said that the worst thing, the worst thing was not the cold, the worst thing was not the starvation, the worst thing was the darkness. Because at the South Pole, 
the sun goes down in mid-May and doesn't come up again until mid-August. So we're talking like three months of just darkness. People who've been through that say that there is no desolation quite as complete as the polar night. No light. Darkness all the time. That's how Jeremiah feels. No light. No hope. Verse 3. Surely against me he turns his hand. Again and again the whole day long. Who's he talking about, by the way? Who's he talking about? He's talking about God. God, he has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. You ever feel like that? You ever feel like God's not listening to me? I don't know why. Here's the thing. Jeremiah knows that's not true. He'll show you that in a minute. But this is how he feels. A lot of you have gone through dark chapters and you have thought these very things and you have shut yourself up and said, no, I cannot say this, I cannot feel this. Real Christians don't feel like this. Jeremiah was a real Christian. Jeremiah was a real Christian. When I listened to Trevor's message from last week, this is what I thought about. Here's a guy trying to obey the call of God in his life. So he picks his family up and he moves to North Carolina. At which point he's not rewarded with blessing and prosperity he's he's rewarded with his marriage falling apart financial hardship just when it seems like things are turning around for him his child dies in his arms darkness god where are you god you're not listening why why god he has blocked my ways verse 9 with blocks of stones he has made my paths crooked in other words, every time I seem to be making some headway, he crushes it. Verse 10, he's like a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. What's your favorite image of God? Is it that one? Like a bear waiting to maul and dismember you? Oh yeah, that's how I like to think about God. Verse 11, he turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. That's almost sadistic, isn't it? Like setting somebody out as a target for your arrow? He drove into my kidneys the arrow of his quiver. I become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. It's not even that I'm being admired for the way that I'm suffering. People, in fact, are questioning my motives. They're saying, I don't know you at all. I thought of this last week when I was listening to Trevor. Here's people looking at it from the outside saying, I bet you he's going through all that because he's got some secret sin that God's punishing him for. I've known single people who told me that one of the worst things that they felt like they had to deal with was people kind of looking at them all the time saying, well, you know, some people are single for a season and some people are single for a reason. I bet you there's something wrong with them. That's why then I got married. They said, I feel like somebody's looking at me and scorning me. I, I, I'm waiting on God. I'm trying to do what God wants. God doesn't seem to be vindicating me. He has filled me with bitterness. He sated me with wormwood. Wormwood, wormwood was, is a bitter herb. In Jewish thought, it represented the wrath of God. It represented desolation. In the New Testament, by the way, they translate it as gall. Gall. Verse 16, he's made my teeth to grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace, and I have forgotten what happiness is. I can't even remember days where I was joyful and happy. I can't even remember what that's like. So I say, verse 18, my endurance has perished. And so has my hope from the Lord. Jeremiah, the prophet of God. You guys encouraged yet? You blessed? You know, before I go on, I need you to learn something very very important. And that is that God chose to include this in the Bible. He didn't have to. He could have edited this out. In fact, he didn't have to choose to include this book at all. 
He could have been like, what? Prophet yelled at me, doubting me, accusing me of things? No, we're not putting that in the Bible. Why don't you give us another one of Zephaniah's books? His books are all cheery about me dancing over people with, you know, singing. People like that. Or how about Solomon? His wisdom is really hot right now. We can't keep his sex manual. Song of Solomon, we can't even keep that on the shelves. That'll drive Bible sales up. Let's put another one of those in there. No. God put this book in there for you who suffer because God knows how you feel. And God needs you to know that he knows how you feel. And it is okay for you to express that. In fact, I would tell you that you need to express it. I feel like we're entirely too quick sometimes with our answers and our think positively Christian jargon. Because sometimes what you need is not theological reasoning. Sometimes what you need is a God who walks through this with you. It's what you need. I, I had friends, I have friends who went through a dark season of their life. And we were in a culture where you were not allowed to talk this way. So they bottled it up. They shut it up. They never expressed it. And everybody thought, hey, they're doing well. They're kind of, they're struggling through this. They believe in all this stuff. But you know what was going on inside? All this. But they never expressed it. They weren't allowed to express it. So what Hebrews 12, 15 says, beware lest a root of bitterness be growing in you. You can trim off the roots of bitterness. You can keep your mouth shut. And then that root goes in there and it defiles everything. Guys, here's what I believe. I believe this with all my heart. God can handle your doubts. He can. He can answer your questions. In fact, I would tell you that in asking the question and expressing the doubt, you're actually giving real faith a chance to grow. It's like I've often told you, doubt is a foot that is poised to go forward or backward. You, you, you might pick that foot up and you might go backwards into unbelief. That is certainly possible, but you're never going to walk forward until you pick up your foot. Some of you, your faith is shallow because you've never really struggled through these things. You've got a domesticated God who gives you purpose and makes you feel warm and fuzzy, but you don't crave him. You don't stand in amazed at him. You don't passionately follow him. Deep struggles like this one are the way that God often changes that. It's what the prophet is saying. He's like, had I not been struck by the rod of your wrath, I would have never learned to follow you. And write this down. Real faith grows out of honestly expressed doubt. Real faith grows out of honestly expressed doubt. Until you have experienced deep pain and deep questions, you'll never know how much deeper God is than pain, how much more glorious he is than the questions. Deep experience, deep pain, deep doubt is how God deepens your understanding and makes you stand amazed and takes you from a casual Christian to someone who craves him. The way that David said in Psalm 42 is that deer pants for the water so my soul longs for you. You don't get that without this. I'll be totally upfront with you. I've never been through what Jeremiah's been through. I've never been th- anything close. I've had pain in my life like you and we all have, but some of you may have been through this. I've never been through anything that I would say is equivalent of that, but I've been through times where I deeply doubted God. I remember right after college, it was several things that, Chris, that I just learned to believe all my life. I remember one of them was hell. And I raged against God. How, God? How could, why would you do this? And by the way, I knew enough to know that you can't do what I see so many people do in our culture, and that is, why well, does choose not to believe that part of the Bible? Because I at least had the understanding that the Bible's not a salad bar where you take what you want and where you leave what you want. It's either all true or it's not true. And I was like, it's either, either all this is false or, but God, how, how, how? Why? And I, I'm not going to go into all of it right now, but I will tell you this, that God used some of these most difficult things to show me a God that was so much more glorious than I had thought that he was. That hell is what hell is because God is who God is, and that's what our sin against God requires. It also deepened my understanding of what God went through to save us because it showed me the depth of my depravity and my sin because that was the natural result of my sin. And so even the doctrine of hell taught me to worship a God who was so loving and so glorious that that is what he went through to save me and what the, 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 the alternative is to rejecting him or what happens when you reject him. What I'm trying to tell you is this, simply this, listen. Some of you need to express your lamentation. You need to write it out. I mean, you write that, put that down. Write out my lamentation. That's your, that's your homework assignment. You need to write it out. I mean, literally write it out and not some sanitized, positive, encouraging Christian radio version of it, but a raw version like Jeremiah's. I mean, seriously, this is a Christian song. 
Imagine hearing this on Christian radio. Positive and encouraging. God is like a bear who mauls me. <laughs> Write it out. Then you go somewhere and read it back to God. Scream it back to him. Grieve over a shattered dream, a messed up marriage, a lost child. Allow yourself to feel the emotions and the sadness and then put them into words and remember that God is listening to you. You want a good example of this? C.S. Lewis, a grief observed. That is not the neat articulation of a Christian doctrine by a Christian theologian. That is a Christian theologian raging against God. Now what if I tell you to close your Bible? Let's go home. (laughs) Worst sermon ever. Verse 21 But this I call to mind. This is one of the most profound transitions in all of the Bible. I want you to see Jeremiah in prison, thinking about a parent that he watched killed in front of him. A child, maybe, that he watched murdered. This I call to mind. And therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good for one to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. There are two partially correct answers that Christians seem to gravitate toward in the midst of suffering. The first is there are a kind of person, a kind of Christian, who in the midst of suffering tend to gravitate toward this idea where they'll make a statement like, well, God is enough. If you're more of the doctrinal type, more of the reform type, seminary type, this is you. Well, you know, God's enough. God never promised us things in this world would be easy. Yep, nope. In fact, he, in fact, he said, in this world, you will have tribulation. So your ministry, we're probably going to work out that well, because Jesus' ministry didn't work out well. Everybody killed him at the end. Your family's not really going to be that, that awesome, because you know what? Jesus' family rejected him. But don't you worry, because in the midst of that pain, God is enough. God is better than the pain. God is deeper than the pain. And you'll find that when you get to heaven, you'll have a reward, and so you just hang on, and you realize that God is, God is better. That's one group of you. There's others of you who you gravitate more toward answers like, well, hang on, because you might not be seeing it now, but God is working, and God will turn your tragedy into triumph. It's like Joseph. Joseph couldn't see it, but when he was in that prison, God was preparing him for the palace. God was turning his tragedy into triumph. Yes, I am imitating somebody. God was turning his tragedy into triumph. You just hang on, because whatever you're going through right now, God is working something beautiful in your life to prepare you for a, a great ministry assignment that he has got for you. That's what you gravitate, more the charismatic types, they tend to gravitate toward that side. Both those answers are partially true, but both of them are incomplete. This text addresses them both. Verse 24, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will hope in him. Portion is a word that the Jews used to refer to their allotment of land. God had given the promised land to the Jews, and so they divided up by tribes and clans, and then by specific families, and then your your family's allotment of land was handed down from generation to generation, and that was called your portion. That was your family's treasure. It was their prize. It was their stake in the blessing of God. I'm reading the book of Leviticus right now in my own time with God, and I see this over and over again. This is our portion. Jeremiah is saying, I don't have any land. The Babylonians took it. But God himself is my portion. God himself is my treasure and my prize. Think for a minute of the blessing of God as if it were a pie, Okay. Think of it as a pie, and you've got different pieces. And this piece right here represents like a blessed marriage. And this piece represents a blessed family, kids who grew up to love Jesus. And this piece over here represents a great ministry. And this represents a great job and financial blessing. Jeremiah says, I don't have any of those pieces, but I got the best piece because it's God himself. God is the best piece of his own pie. Habakkuk 3, 17 Habakkuk expresses this very thing in a verse that some of you know, and if you don't, you ought to memorize it. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor there be fruit on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Some of you are like, I don't have any of those things. 
olives or herds or flocks or any of that stuff. Let, let me put that in modern English. Here, here's how it goes. It means when your marriage is crumbled. It means when your stocks have plummeted. It means when you've lost your job, when you got wrongly accused of cheating at your school and expelled and it wasn't your fault. It means when your boyfriend has broken up with you. It means when nothing is going right. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord, in the Lord. I will take joy in what? In the blessings God has given me? In the promise of future blessings? No, I will take joy now in the God of my salvation now because God the Lord is my strength now. There is nothing wrong with praying for the blessing of friendship or romantic love or marriage, but you know what? God is better than that blessing. Earthly marriage is just a shadow of the heavenly love that we craved. The arms that we longed for in marriage were his arms. The tenderness and affection that we longed for was found in the God who gave himself for us at the cross. I want to be married, but if I'm not, or if I'm not in a good marriage, then God is my portion. And God is better than marriage. There's nothing wrong with praying for the blessing of money. But you know what? Jesus is better than money. He provides more meaning and more security than all the money in the world. And God never crashes or dips below 10,000 or loses his AAA rating. And God promised to provide for all your needs. In the pie of God's blessing, God is the best peace. God himself is the best of all his blessings. So God himself, the presence and the approval of God is my portion of the pie of God's blessing. He goes on. Verse 25. But the Lord is also good to those who wait for him. And it is good for one to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Here's what a lot of people who understand the first point don't seem to get. And that is God's salvation is something he does here on the earth. God is working good for his people on the earth. I love this phrase from the Psalms that a lot of people like me, a lot of my friends, a lot of those of us in the more doctrinal reform camp, they don't, they, I feel like some of them have probably never really read this verse and really like grasped it. Psalm 27, 13, look at this. I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord, where? In the land of the living. Psalm 88, 10 says it like this. God's goodness is not something that is reserved for the grave. God doesn't just work wonders for the dead. It's not just the departed who experience God's goodness. It is, and his steadfast love is not experienced only in the grave. I expect to see it here and now. I got up this morning expecting to see God's goodness in my family. I don't say, well, you know what? My wife's probably going to leave me and my kids are probably going to reject God. The church is probably going to turn their back on me and fire me because that's just what the Christian life is all about. I didn't get up and say that. No, I got up this morning and expected to see God's goodness working in my family now. I want to see his goodness and his kindness in my life now. I know heaven is awesome. But I want to see God's goodness at work in your lives and in my church and in my children and in my marriage. And the Lord is compassionate and merciful. He loves to show favor and kindness because he's a daddy. He's a daddy. So don't tell me about how awesome heaven's going to be. Don't just tell me about how awesome heaven's going to be. I want to see God's kindness now. And God loves to give it. He overflows with love for his children. That's what Jeremiah said. His mercies are new every morning. I mean, I'm a daddy. I love my kids, but I'm sinful. And sometimes at the end of the day, I'm just done. They've irritated me for the last time, and I cannot get them down to bed quick enough. Anybody want to testify? Right? And then the next morning when I get up, well, you know what, though? I can't remember any of that irritation. I can't. I get up and I see them and my heart just overflows with love for them again. And I don't remember how irritated I was the night before. Jeremiah is bringing that image from a God who doesn't need to sleep and doesn't get irritated and he's bringing that image and saying God's mercies are new every morning. And when you got up this morning, you greeted the mercy of God and the kindness of God who looks at you like a daddy. Job is a great example of both of these points, by the way. Job, remember Job? Job's got lost everything. Loses his fortune, loses his friends, wife tells him to curse God and die. I mean, it just goes about as bad for Job as it could get. Job goes through one of the most wretched experiences. If you've ever read all the way through the book of Job, most people don't make it. They get about chapter 20 and then they just, they crash. If you ever get all the way through it, which I would encourage you to, what you'll find at the end is two things happen to Job. Number one, he starts to know God in an entirely different way. For the first time in his life, he starts to worship. Not because he has all the answers, but because he experiences a God that is deeper than the pain. He knows God. He actually begins to worship. He'd been a Christian before, but he never really worshiped. 
Second thing you'll find is that God restored. You ever see this at the end? It's like the last verse. It says God restored to him everything even more than he had at the very beginning. Both of these things, God's kindness at work in what is going on in your life and God also preparing you to know him because his mercies are new every morning. You say, well, if I could just see what God is doing during this dark hour, if I could just see that, I could make it. Listen, I'm not gonna go long on this because this is one of the things that Trevor touched on last week, but let me just, let me give you three things that we know God is doing in the darkness for you, okay? Three things we know because God tells us. They all start with P because you just can't get the Southern Baptist out of me. I've tried, but it just won't leave. Hey, here we go. They all start with P. Number one, he is pursuing his agenda. God is pursuing his agenda in your dark hour. One of the things that scripture tells us very clearly is that God uses pain to bring salvation into the world. That's what he did with Jesus. Jesus did not bring salvation to us by being a political ruler. Jesus brought salvation by going to a cross. He said, likewise, his followers would bring salvation the same way. What is pretty interesting is that we can see something about Jeremiah's life he couldn't see. And that is that God was going to use this exile to actually bring about something much better than the nation of Israel itself, and that is the Messiah. God would use the exile to bring about the birth of the Messiah. Paul, when Paul began to follow Jesus, started to say, the reason that we're going through all this is because death works in us, but life works in you. God chooses to bring his salvation to you, your family, and to your world through the cross, just like he did with Jesus, just like he did with Jesus. And so you hang on in the midst of that because there's some things that can only be done in the midst of pain that can't be done in the midst of prosperity. That's not a popular message, but that is exactly what the New Testament says. Death in you works life in other people. Secondly, he is purifying your heart. He's pursuing his agenda. Number two, he's purifying your heart. You see, what God is doing is he is tearing down your own kingdom so that you will be able to understand whether or not you're living for yours or his. God ever do that to you? He does that to me. He'll shatter some dream just so he can expose to you that this was never really about him, it was about you. That ever happened? I was praying a prayer that sounded like thy kingdom come, but what it really meant was my kingdom come. And what God did is he frustrated my prayer and he shattered my dream so that I would be forced to see who I was actually living for because I can see some things by disappointed dreams that I can't see when they're all coming true. One of our pastors told me this week, he's like, first time I came to this church, he said, you used an analogy that was so helpful in, in reevaluating my life. He said, he said, he said, if, he said you said, if, if, if life were a movie, who would the main character in your movie be? Because every movie has a major character and a minor character, right? And the major character is the deal, the minor characters only exist to serve the story of the major character. In the story of your life, who's the major character? For most of us, it's us. To become a follower of Jesus means that you get out of a movie about you and you get into a movie about him. When you're a minor character, guess what? The point is not what's happening to you. The point is how your story is serving the story of the major character. So you start to say the point is not living or dying. The point is not prosperity or suffering. The point is in all things giving glory to God and contributing to the larger story of which I am a part. So whether in prosperity or whether in pain, whether in prison or the palace, whether in blessing or what seems like abandonment, the point is in all things giving glory to God. The other thing God's doing is purifying you. He's trying to show you what you really care about. And the first commandment is that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. I say many of us in here have no real concept of what that is. I'm not saying you're a bad person. I'm not saying you're not a good Christian. You come to church, you tithe, you do all the stuff you're supposed to do, but you don't crave God. You're not like David, Psalm 42.1, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you. What we have done to that verse, we put it on like a coffee cup with a you know, deer jumping over a brook and it makes us feel calm. That's not what is being expressed in that verse. Longing for God. What God does is he sometimes shakes up what you care about so you can see whether or not you love and crave God. God is not supposed to be an afterthought. He's not supposed to be somebody that you serve occasionally on Sunday. I don't, I, I'm not talking to hypocrites here. I'm talking to casual Christians who don't think about God all the time, who God is not the dominating reality of your life, then you crave him like a man who's been in the desert and hasn't drunk water for 30 days. That's what David is expressing. God is purifying your heart. Thirdly, he is preparing you for ministry. I don't mean ministry like I do. I mean ministry in the lives of others. 
That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. He says, you know what? God has frustrated our ministry at every possible turn. And he did that for a few reasons. He said the first reason that God did that to us is one, he wanted us to know him better. He wanted us to know Christ and his sufferings better. He said the other reason God tore apart our ministry is he wanted you to know he wanted you to know that it wasn't about the power and eloquence of Paul, it was about the power of God. And so God made me look like a fool sometimes so that he would increase through my suffering. He said, but the third reason that God, God put these things and tore down our ministry is because he wanted me to be able to understand your pain. Because if I've never been through pain, I, it's hard for me to understand yours. And God sometimes will wound you so that you can understand and speak to people who have been wounded. The way A.W. Tozer says this is God... Before God can use a man greatly, he must first wound him deeply. Before God can use you greatly, he must first wound you deeply. God uses pain. And Jeremiah's in deep pain. And he can't see what God is doing. But he chooses to believe that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, that his mercies have never come to an end. Listen, despair is not caused by pain and suffering. Despair is caused by hopelessness. Hope is not the lessening of pain. Hope is the recognition of purpose in pain. The recognition of God's loving sovereignty and good intentions in pain. Hope does not come from God taking you out of pain. Hope comes from God taking the despair out of pain. Paul compares it to giving birth. No, I've never given birth. All right, so let me acknowledge that. So don't send me an angry letter, ladies, on this. I've never given birth, but neither has Paul, so back off, all right? But I've been with somebody who I love very much who's given birth four times. Three times we made it in time for the epidural. One time we didn't. And I had to watch my wife go through some of the most intense pain that I have never experienced. I developed a whole new respect for that woman in that moment. Paul says that our pain now is like that. It's intense. It's real. Ladies, imagine for a minute that you were going through that level of pain, but you had no idea where it was coming from and no idea when it would end. That's despair. But when you go through that pain, as I watch my wife go through that pain, it wasn't despair. It was painful, yes, but it was almost, if I could say it like this without somebody throwing something at me, it was almost like a blessed pain because of the joy she had in what was coming. And it was temporary. Paul says our pain is real. Our pain is deep. But because we know that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, and because his mercies have never come to an end, and God is working salvation, even our pain now is a blessed pain. Because what we are experiencing now is temporary, but what God is working is eternal, is eternal. Now some of you say, but I can't see it. I can't see how God is using my pain for good. You're talking now, but I can't see it. Yes, you can. At least you can see some of it. Isn't it true that you can look back five, six years maybe and see how something that went really wrong in your life, you didn't understand at the time how God actually used that for good in your life? Have you ever seen that? Yes, you have. If you can look back from five or six years and see a purpose for some of the pain in your life, don't you think that given enough time and enough distance and enough wisdom, you will see a purpose for all of it? Yes, you will. But in the meantime, you choose to believe in the steadfast love of the Lord that never ceases. Write this down. You can't control what you remember, but you can choose what you call to mind. You cannot control what you remember. You cannot control what you feel all the time. And you ought to be honest about that. That's what I'm trying to tell you. But you can choose what you call to mind. And you choose to call to mind the steadfast love of the Lord. One of my favorite British pastors, a guy named D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, used to make this statement. He said, in a sense, in a sense, what the scriptures do is they teach us how to talk to ourselves. I've got voices of doubt within, but I overcome them with the louder words of the gospel. I know the outlook looks bleak and it makes me think that I'm in despair, but I trump that with the louder voice of the gospel and this I call to mind. I can't control what I remember, but I choose what I call to mind. Here's a question. How do you know the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases? How do you know his mercies never come to an end? How do you know that they are new for you this morning? How do you know that? See, a lot of people don't know that, do they? 
You bet you're going through something, and you may be thinking right now that it's because God is mad at you about something. God is punishing you for some past sin. How can you know with that assurance that God's mercies overflow for you every morning? Here's how you know. The gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is that Jesus traded places with you. Jesus was the real exile. Jesus was the one who was driven from Jerusalem in shame and then crucified and butchered outside of Jerusalem. Jesus was the one whose body was torn apart by God as if God was a bear mauling and dismembering him. Jesus was the one who on the cross faced abandonment and unanswered prayers as a punishment for our sin. Jesus is the one who God blocked his path from being able to escape when he said, my God, will you let me do this in some other way? And he said, no. Jesus is the one who literally drank wormwood. Matthew 27, 34, they offered him vinegar mixed with gall. Going back to this and many other Old Testament allusions, showing that he drank the full cup of God's wrath. He lived, verses 1 through 21, or 1 through 20, so that I could stand in the assurance of verses 21 through 26. So now when I woke up, I knew that God could not love me any more than he does right now. You want to know why? Because I am in Christ. We traded places. That's the gospel. Jesus in my place. Jesus drank the full cup of wormwood. He drank the cup of God's wrath so that God's mercies would be new. I got his position of favor because he got my penalty of condemnation. We traded places, the great exchange. So now, as the hymn writer says, when darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every dark and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand. It means that, 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 that I face each day with the assurance that because he took my condemnation, I get God's mercies working through me because God greets me with nothing but tenderness. That's what it means to be a Christian, y'all. Listen, in Christ, in Christ. You see, I'm talking to a lot of people I know who, who you feel like when you're doing well spiritually, that God, you're close to God. And then when you're doing poor spiritually, you're far away from God. That just shows, and I say this humbly, it shows you don't understand the gospel. Because the gospel is not, is not that you're closer to God and farther from God based on how you've lived. The gospel is that you're close to God based on how Jesus lived and what he did for you. So how I live does not determine my closeness to God. What Jesus did determines my closeness to God. Closeness to God. And so I live right now. I live right now in Christ. God's mercies are new for me every morning because God could not love Christ any more than he does right now and I am in Christ. See, God, his mercies are mine. And so I face that with assurance and I call it to mind. He faced exile for me. He faced condemnation. So now nothing can separate me from his love. No condemnation remains for me. He will never leave or forsake me. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Even when I go through the valley of the shadow of, of, uh, um, of, shadow of death, I will fear no evil because God is with me. And God went through the shadow of death and experienced death so I wouldn't have to. It is impossible to believe the gospel in despair. Let me give you one final thing really quickly, and I say this, listen, with a broken heart. For those of you who are outside of Christ, there really is nothing but despair. Despair is not inaccurate for you, it's actually very accurate. Because everything that you're experiencing now, you don't have a hope that goes beyond the grave. I heard a man speak recently, he called himself the happy skeptic. He talked about how much freedom was in his life now that he doesn't believe in God. He told the group that he was speaking to, he said, just live your life. Embrace the moment. The only meaning of life is to live it. So live, laugh, love, and just enjoy what you have that's right there in front of you. And I thought, what an eloquent and poetic but tragically insufficient approach to life. His statement is great as long as life's going well. As long as your books are selling, as long as your family's good, as long as you're fairly healthy. But when your wife gets cancer, when your kid dies, when you're on your deathbed, it's like I've often told you guys, when you go under the knife for open heart surgery, your friends and family, we're, we're going to stand around you and we're going we're gonna to say, we're with you during this time. But you know we're not telling the truth. We can't go there with you. And in that moment, unless you have a God who is larger than death, a God who has conquered death and a hope beyond the grave, when you go under that knife, you are going all by yourself. Despair. And then you awake, if you don't make it, and you stand in the presence of a God 
who you have to face for your sin. The Bible tells you that in that moment, when you have to face condemnation, and there's nowhere to turn, that you will feel so overwhelmed that you turn to the mountains, Revelation, and call on the mountains to fall on you to hide you from the face of God. That is despair. If you are in Christ, there is no condemnation. Despair is an illusion. You may feel it, but it's not real. If you are outside of Christ, then hope is an illusion. And all you have is despair. And then you die and hell awaits. So my prayer is that for you who are believers, your despair would drive you to your hope in Christ. And for you who are not believers, your despair would wake you up to cause you to flee to Christ. Because it doesn't have to be this way. Christ conquered death for you. And he offers it to you as a gift if you'll receive it. If you'll repent and you'll believe. That's what God is doing in your pain as he's drawing you to himself. Why don't you bow your heads, if you would, at all of our campuses. You bow your head. If you are a believer, would you use these moments right now to be drawn close to Christ, to remind you that he is deeper than your pain? I cannot give you an explanation for everything that's happening, but I can give you the love of Christ. I can give you Jesus in your place and let you anchor your soul there. If you're not a believer, could I just urge you to repent and believe? Repent means you surrender your life right now to Jesus. He is the Lord, and you say, Jesus, I surrender. It's not a magical prayer, but if it's something that your heart is doing, God hears it. I surrender to you. And then believe. Believe means that you receive what he's done on your behalf, the gift righteousness God gives you. It's a gift. Just receive it. Jesus lived the life you should have lived, then died the death you were condemned to die as a gift to you. And if you receive it, then you trade places and you get his favor because he took your condemnation. You receive it right now. Father, I pray that you would draw us to the gospel. I pray, especially for those who have never trusted Christ, I pray that, God, they would have the courage not just to make this decision right now, but to speak to one of our pastors, to speak to maybe even better the person that brought them this morning. And they would embrace your love and be embraced by it before they leave our campuses. I pray in Jesus' name. Now point us to the gospel, I pray in Christ. Amen.